with us. Thank you for joining us. My name is Luke. Just by a show of hands, I'm curious, how many of you are nine o'clockers? All right, how many 11s? All right, well, that's kind of opposite of what usually is. So 11 o'clock may be light next week, we'll see. No, but I'm also excited to see that you guys actually can raise your hands because sometimes I'm thinking in worship, we're like, it's like mannequins, like, all hail King Jesus. Right? Like, I'm not trying to manufacture anything here, but like, do we realize who we are praising? Like, do we? The king of all kings. And I don't know how you worship. I'm not telling you how to worship. I know for me, I can't help it but abandon myself because I just know what Jesus has done for me. And I just think it's amazing to see, as we're going to talk about today, there is no other gospel. None, none that can save. And sometimes we just get in the routine of life and it's like, oh yeah, I do my Christian thing and I show up on church on Sunday and Jesus. And we like lose the sight of what we're doing. I think we've lost the luster of it. Like we get in this routine of, oh yeah, I just do my thing and I just stand here and I sing these lyrics and I don't really know what they're saying and I don't really understand them and I don't even really care because I got a whole lot going on at 11 o'clock for my brunch meeting that I'm really just wandering there in my mind and we forget that we serve this king who has given his life so that we might live unshackled. Do we get it? Do we? I know in my life, there's some moments like, I'm just like, man, God, I'm just not really feeling it. And it's in those moments that I have to praise even more. Because it's in those moments that I don't feel like praising that God does something in my heart that I cannot explain. See, we're going to talk about this morning, Paul, and I've entitled this message, No Other Gospel. I was searching for a title, and I was like, well, it's actually already here in this section. It says right there, No Other Gospel, and that's what we're talking about this morning. And sometimes when we think about this gospel, we're like, well, there is no other gospel. Islam does not count. Mormonism does not count. Buddhism does not count. And we could go on and on and on with all these religions. But what Paul is actually saying is there is no other gospel other than the gospel of grace, which God has extended to us. And we cannot earn his salvation. We cannot earn his love. We cannot earn his favor. But we as Christians sometimes write it off as, oh, well, that's a Catholic thing because they spend a whole lot of time on works. No, it's right in this room. Subconsciously, we do the exact same thing. I do it every week. Hey, God, if I'm in the word enough, maybe you should bless me. Uh, no, Luke, that's a workspace gospel. Uh, hey, God, if I'm on my knees more and my jeans start to wear a hole in my knees, then I should hear an answered prayer. Uh, no, Luke, that's a workspace gospel. The gospel that I have given is full of grace and full of mercy to which you cannot earn. There is no other gospel but that, and sometimes we miss it. 
Because we push it off on all these other religions. Well, that's another gospel. Well, that is another gospel. But we've also created a pseudo-gospel within Christianity to think that I can have my cake and eat it too. I can do all these things to earn the favor of God. And then when I don't get what I want, I can't figure out why I'm so burdened and hung up and my life doesn't make sense and I just feel exhausted. Maybe it's because you're shackled and you're not living within the essence of the gospel, which is grace and mercy. To which we did not deserve. That's the amazing news about the gospel. Do you guys agree or not? Because literally it's like a tombstone in here. Amen, right? Like that's why we come. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for what you're doing in this place. God, and I pray right now that you would do something in this room that I cannot do. God, that you would create life in this place, that you would create purpose in this place. God, that we would leave this room knowing there is no other gospel. Jesus has come to save and set us free. And to that we will bow. And to that we will lift our hands and worship and praise God because you deserve the glory. You deserve the honor. And you deserve the praise. God, would you light us up in this room this morning? Not in a real, not in a fake way, in this pseudo-Christianity way, God. But just do a deep work in us that would excite us for what you're doing. Because you are the king of all kings. God, thank you for what you have done in the life of this church. And we're expecting more. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, we're in the book of Galatians, and we're in Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 6 today, going through verse 10, and Paul says this, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ, but... Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is an extremely amazing yet weighty passage. Paul says, I am astonished that you have so quickly deserted him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different Gospel. Astonished literally means genuinely shocked. That they are so quickly deserting. See, the church in Galatia, Paul had preached this gospel that you did not need to be circumcised to be saved, that you could not adhere to the law to be saved, that the gospel was this free gift. And so there were a whole bunch of new believers in Galatia. I mean, after all, the gospel had just begun to advance. And Paul is saying, I am astonished that you could hear of that gospel, that you could hear of this goodness and this grace and so quickly desert it. Did you know that any time, most of the Galatians were new believers. And there is a great temptation to quickly desert this gospel when we are first saved. But that doesn't end today. I see it all the time. I mean, someone professes, man... 
I, I need Jesus. I need him. I want him. I profess him as Lord. And the enemy comes in with a counter punch. And all of a sudden, they're so quickly returning to their old way of life. But then there's also us, the church, who maybe do this thing for a period of time. And we, we can say all the right words. We can do all the right things. And pretty soon, we're like, man, this just really isn't my thing anymore. It's just kind of not working out. <laughs> Life's harder than I thought it was going to be. It just doesn't really make sense. And we begin to maybe kind of move away from the gospel, but maybe not so quickly. Maybe we've tested it through a period of time. But see, deserting is this process of wandering away. They had not deserted God, Paul didn't say. He said, you are quickly deserting, meaning you're moving further from the gospel every day that you live. And we are all prone to the exact same thing. That the more that we play this religion thing and we come to church, the greater the temptation is, honestly, to kind of move away from the grace of God, to kind of forget the beauty of the gospel, to forget the beauty of salvation, that I was stranded in sin and Christ plucked me out of it. And all of a sudden, life is kind of hard, so I begin to desert him and move away. See, Paul couldn't believe that after hearing the true gospel that they would so quickly wander from it. See, the message of the gospel and the message of the whole center of this letter is the gospel consists of free grace, not cheap. We talked about it last week. Just because grace is free does not mean it's cheap. It costs God everything. His only son who had to hang on a cross. That is not cheap. That's very costly. That's very weighty to pluck us from sin. So while grace is free, it is not cheap. But there is nothing that we can do to earn the love and the favor of God. There's nothing we can do in and of ourselves to earn God's love more. And Paul is saying, how can you hear that gospel and wander to this other one that bound you to the law and to come under a dull stone? <laughs> Circumcision, a.k.a. That would be awful. And they said that Paul's saying, you don't need to do any of that. That is gone. Jesus has come to pay for it. Yet you are quickly deserting that. Maybe you're in this room this morning, and you're in a season of slowly deserting the God of heaven. That he hasn't shown up when you thought he should show up, so you begin to wander away. That life isn't going as you thought it should, so you begin to wander away. That your loved one wasn't healed, so you begin to wander, because how can God be good if God loves this person, yet they're still sick? And it doesn't make sense to me, so I start to wander away. Or maybe you're in this room and you don't feel like God even sees your pain and your struggles, so you begin to desert him and begin to wander away from this gospel of grace, whatever it may be. But I want you to hear this. Deserting often comes in response to feeling deserted. It's probably what the Galatians were feeling a little bit of. Hey, God... Um, yeah, we're not really seeing you answer the things that I thought you were supposed to answer. You're not really doing the things that we had a deal for you to do. So we begin to, we begin to desert him. And it's the same thing today. I don't know where you're at. But in, a, in this room, I promise you there's someone in this room who is beginning to desert God and beginning to wander because they feel deserted by God himself. 
I want you to hear this very clearly. Deuteronomy 31.6. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. Someone in this room needs to hear that you may be wandering and you may feel deserted by the God of heaven and he's not showing up on your time, but he has not forgotten about you and he has not deserted you because his promise is he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. So keep leaning in. Keep pursuing him. Keep trusting him. Verse 7, not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. What is to distort, to twist, or pervert. Essentially what these false teachers in Galatia were saying was Jesus is not enough. Jesus is great, but it's not only what he did, it's also what you do for him. So if you don't come under the law, and if you don't come under the dull stone, then you can have nothing to do with him. And Paul is saying in a statement that is actually one of the boldest statements in any gospel, that cannot be true. And I will argue it to the end that that is a false gospel, and it is a lie from the pit of hell. It's a lie from the pit of hell. You don't need to do anything to earn the favor and the love of God. That's the message of the gospel. That is what sets apart Christianity from all other religions on earth. Every religion on earth is you have to do something to prove your faithfulness. You have to do something to appease your God. You have to come under your God, but you also have to do these things to earn your next level into spirituality. And Paul is saying, uh-uh, and Jesus is saying, uh-uh, when I said it is finished, it is complete, and it is completely finished. You can do nothing to earn my love, you can do nothing to earn my favor, and you can do nothing to earn your salvation. It's all a free gift from me. That's the one thing that's amongst many, but one of the things that separates Christianity from any other religion on earth. Not by your merit, by Christ. Not by your strength, by Jesus. If you would turn from your sin and you would turn to Christ, he would set you free. Remember how I said it's free, but it's not cheap? You also cannot be saved if you have not turned from your sin. It's not this universalist gospel where you just say, oh yeah, I know this God. I've heard his name one time and I lifted my hand in church one time and I praised him one time. So therefore I'm saved. That's not the case. Saved people are forgiven people. To be forgiven, you have to be plucked from where you are living, dead in sin. You have to give your life to Christ and you have to live it for him. It's not like this salvation through osmosis where you just somehow just fade into Jesus. It doesn't happen. There's a moment in time where you have chosen to turn from your sin and turn to Christ. And that is free. It is not cheap, but it is free. And once you are saved, there's nothing you can do to earn it. I mean, it's crazy how many people I talk to, well, you know, that Christianity thing, it's not for me. I mean, you got to go to church and you got to pray and you got to do this and you got to do that. It's like, actually, you don't really, you don't have to do any of that. But that is all a fruit of when we are saved. We desire that. So you basically, you don't have to measure up. You don't have to hold up your end of the bargain. You just have to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm a wretched sinner. Save me and set me. That's the beauty of the gospel. 
We're seeing this a lot within the church today. The gospel has also been distorted, whether it's the prosperity gospel. Hey, if you give enough money, God will give you that great Lamborghini. Not true. It's done great damage to the gospel. Because see, it's also pivoted it to, well, if you're not giving enough, if you don't have a lot to give, then you can't have the favor of God because you don't have enough money. Such bogus. God's not concerned with money. He owns it all. He's concerned with your heart. And there is no other gospel other than Jesus has come to save sinners and set you free. We hear it a lot in the Catholic faith that it's based a whole lot on works. And you're like, yeah, I knew that. Yeah, but what about the Protestant faith? Same exact thing. We just don't openly admit it. <laughs> right? I promise you, you're sitting in this room and you're thinking, yeah, there's been times in my life when I thought I could do enough and earn the favor and love of God. You cannot. There is no other gospel. But the gospel of the free gift of salvation. Listen to what J.R. Scott says. To tamper with the gospel is always to trouble the church. You cannot touch the gospel and leave the church untouched because the church is created and lives by the gospel. Indeed, the church's greatest troublemakers, now as then, are not those outside who oppose, ridicule, and persecute it, but those inside who try to change the gospel. Amen. There's a whole lot of church people that think it's Jesus and. There's a whole lot of church people that think I can earn the love and favor of God and then we work ourselves to death and then we feel shackled and bound to chains because we're trying to live in this bondage that God never called us to live in. It's the worst in the church because we've forgotten the message of the gospel, the trueness of it, that it's free. And that as Jesus works in our lives, we begin to do those works. Yes, it's a byproduct. We begin to do these things. We begin to serve God with what he has entrusted to us because we can't help but not. But serving God does not earn any favor with God. I'm just telling you right now. So we often do that in the church. What makes the gospel good news different than any other religion on earth? The fact that none of it hinges on you or your merit or mine, but only on Christ and his alone. It separates it from every other religion on earth. That is Jesus Christ who saves. See, to pervert or distort the gospel is this. It puts us on the same playing field as every other religion on earth. Why would this be attractive or stand out to others who are searching? Why would it? Every religion on earth, you have to earn the favor and the love of God. Or whoever your God is. And God is not saying, he's not, not that we don't do anything for him. It's just, we can't earn it. And that's attractive to me, I know. I don't want to be a part of something that relies on me and my merit, because I'll fail it every time. And then it's so small that it's not big, it's not big enough anyway if it depended upon me. There's a God in heaven who loves you fiercely, and Paul is saying there is no other gospel. Verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. This is a very bold statement. As we have said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul repeats this twice, one of the harshest statements in all of the New Testament. 
The weight behind this word is literally if anyone preaches to you a gospel other than the one that I preach to you, let him be accursed or literally condemned to hell, even if it be an angel. This is a pretty bold statement. And he's not saying it just to combat all the other false religions. He's saying even within Christianity, if we create this gospel to be you have to measure up and you have to bring your stuff and you have to have life figured out, then that's a false gospel and may it be a curse from anyone who preaches it. Even if it be an angel. Isn't it interesting? First, hear this. This is what Luther says. Here, Paul is breathing fire. His zeal is so fervent that he almost begins to curse the angels themselves. Wow. But isn't it interesting that some major religions on earth formed from visits from angels, Islam being one of them? Muslims believe that the word of God was revealed to Muhammad, the archangel Gabriel. Which better cause a red flag, as Paul just said, if even a different gospel comes from an angel, let it be a curse. They believed the revelations were collected and became the Quran, which is essentially their religious book of doing a whole bunch of things for God. It came from an angel. How about Mormonism? The Mormons believe an angel is said to have visited Joseph Smith in 1823 and said that he was chosen to restore God's church and make it pure. Four years later, he received these four tablets of golden stone that became the Book of Mormon. A few things I want you to know. This, this came from an angel, which already should raise red flags, seeing that Paul says if it does come from an angel, you better watch out because it's false. So the next time they come knocking on your door, I just want you to know here's a few things that they believe. And they, they say it in a way that honestly makes it kind of believable. I haven't come to my house many times in Texas, and I'm thinking like, yeah, you have... I mean, if I didn't know my Bible, you would have a pretty legit thing to come to me with to make me believe what you believe. But it's twisted. That's why we need to spend a whole lot of time knowing the word, because then we can define what is true. Sometimes we read the Bible, I just want to read the Bible so that I can defend against everything that is not true. How about just no truth, and then when false, when false stuff comes along, you know it's false, because you know what truth is. This is what they believe about God, that... That God the Father was once a man, and he basically was promoted into godhood, progressed into godhood. They're polytheistic, so they don't believe the Trinity. If you want a message on the Trinity, I preached one a while ago, but it's not one God, three persons. It's three distinct gods within the Trinity, which is heresy. The exaltation of humans, they believe that all humans can go through the process of being exalted to godhood. Jesus, they actually believe that Jesus was the firstborn spirit child of like this heavenly father and mother and then physically came to earth later. They believe in three kingdoms. That most people will end up in one of three kingdoms of glory and it all depends on what? Their level of faithfulness. No other gospel. There can be nothing. You can't earn it. You don't go to some other kingdom because you're more faithful than the person down the street. It doesn't work that way. The belief in Christ or even God is necessary to obtain immortality in a kingdom. 
And it's only the most spiritually preserved, perverse who end up in hell, which the gospel would say, no, actually, we're all beelining towards hell. But Jesus came because God loved us so much to intercept that if we would just believe that we could be diverted from hell to heaven. Completely different gospel. Sin and atonement, they believe Christ's atonement or immortality for all people, whether they repent and believe or not. And lastly, salvation, they believe that God basically gives a general salvation to all in one of the three heavenly kingdoms, and this is how they understand grace. This is not the grace that Paul is preaching. They believe that belief in Christ is necessary only to obtain a passage to the highest kingdom, not only faith, but participation in the temple, rituals, and obedience to its laws, and also its prerequisites. Different gospel, and it started with an angel, a quote-unquote angel. I mean, you could go on and on, but all that to say is I think Paul knew what he was talking about here. I think when God, the Holy Spirit, inspired Paul to write these words, he knew what he was talking about because many of the religions on earth started the exact same way. And they've all twisted it to some level of your faithfulness and some level of your merit and some doing enough for God to earn the favor and the love of God. And it's heresy and to lie from the pit of hell. There is no other gospel. But this gospel of beautiful grace, mercy, and love, if you would just turn from your old way and turn to Christ, it's free. Thank you. I'm glad to know that God's doing something, someone in this room. Seriously, though, that's the message of the gospel, and there's nothing more beautiful than that. Verse 10. I don't have a clock. This is dangerous. <laughs> For I am now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Man, things have not really changed, right? It's pretty similar today with many other religious thoughts and schools of thoughts and various opinions. If we were to read this, when I read this, I'm like, dang, Paul was not a very tolerant person <laughs> to that which was not true. Paul was not really concerned with one's feelings. Paul was not really concerned with one's school of thought and varying opinions. He was concerned with what was true. See, the Galatians... And many of the false teachers hated this that Paul was trying to contradict and counter because it was really thwarting their plan of attack. And Paul says, you know what? When it's a lie, I'm going to call it a lie and I'm going to boldly call it a lie because that's a lie from the pit of hell. That cannot be. He was not tolerant to emotions and opinions, yet he was very loving in trying to persuade men and women to the truth. Huge difference. huge difference we miss that in the church often because we're like well that's wrong so i'm just gonna get on my high horse and prove with all my theology and all my muster that that is true paul also did it in love he also did it in grace he also did it in mercy see we can stand on truth and not pound someone into the ground with our intellectual knowledge or our pursuit of knowledge or all that we think we know paul knew a whole lot 
But there's many references in Scripture where he just did anything. He became all things to all men to reach some. He, he, he desired to persuade them to the truth. But this was not truth that the Galatians were believing. I mean, can't you hear the chatter with Paul? Paul stand up and say, that, that's not true, and I'm not actually here to please man. I'm here to please God, so I'm more concerned with my faithfulness than any applause of man. Can't you hear him? Man, that Paul guy, he's such an arrogant bigot to think that, that there's only that, that it's free. I can't believe Paul would break. Can you believe he would believe that? Can you believe Paul? He wasn't very tolerant to our feelings and the belief of others that were false. He just, he says his way is the only way. But what about this? There's a whole lot of other people saying this. Paul, he's not a very tolerant guy. Or that may work for you, Paul, but it's not really my thing. Or, hey, Paul, you need to be a little more tolerant of other renditions of the gospel. It's Jesus and. It's Jesus and works. It's Jesus and the law. It's Jesus and circumcision. It's Jesus and. And Paul's saying, uh-uh, take out the and. It's Jesus. And I'll die saying that. I'll die saying that it's Jesus and Jesus alone. But all the other garbage? Stone me. I don't care, but I'm not bowing to that because it's false. He wasn't very tolerant. Or how about, I can hear this one. Hey, Paul, you need to be a little more open-minded. <laughs> but just a little bit more open-minded into this thing, Paul. What about, what about them? They believe in the same God. It's Islam. No, it's not the same God. Don't be tolerant. Hey, what about the, the Mormon faith? It's essentially the same. It's not the same. It's not even close. So don't tolerate it. Love them, come alongside them, but don't tolerate it. Because there is one truth. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Apart from me, there is no other. That's the gospel. There is no other gospel. Or how about, hey, Paul, that may be your truth, but it's not mine. I want you to hear this, Paul's response. Is Paul's response, his aim was never to please man, but to God. I mean, we see it right here. And Paul says, if I were serving, if I were here to please man, I would not be serving God. Because you can't serve both man and God. You can't serve two masters. And Paul said, as for me, I'll stand on truth. See, Paul was fearless. Paul was bold as a lion in his defense of truth. Which is also why one of our values is we are fearless and we are bold as lions. Because there's a whole lot of school of thought, and there's a whole lot of tolerance game out there. And I'm just going to say, no, we're not tolerant to anything that is not true. We will come along in love beside you and help you walk through it, but we are not tolerant to something that is false. Because it just cheapens the gospel. It makes it weak. See, approval here, as Paul is saying, he is not seeking the approval of man. We're battling the exact same thing today. We live in a market-driven age. Every church has its special niche, and we view every visitor as a prospective customer, and every aspect of worship is designed to satisfy the consumer. But we must be reminded of the same thing that Paul was reminding the Galatians. The gospel is not a product to be peddled. It doesn't need a shrewd salesman to make it palatable to modern-day tastes because times have changed. It doesn't need it. That's not the gospel. The gospel has its own self-generating dynamic authority and does not need to be propped up by artificial means. It merely needs to be proclaimed. 
gospel. Jesus, the power to save. There is no other gospel. There is no other name under heaven by which man might be saved. And hear this, though. This does not mean we are gruff and stand on our high horse and proclaim truth. See, we proclaim truth seasoned in grace. Why are we a people of grace? Because we have been given grace. Because we give that which we have received. The gospel is a message of grace and mercy that is free to anyone who will believe. Paul didn't beat people over the head with the Bible because he didn't even have the Bible because he was writing the Bible. <laughs> Think about that one. And he still saw God do the most incredible things the world has ever seen. Why? Because it wasn't this. It was the message he was proclaiming. Jesus to set the captive free. That is not true. This is, I'll proclaim it. But even when that's not true, Paul still came along sometimes harsh. But it was always in love. It was always in grace. It was always in mercy. See, Paul is not saying he just doesn't want to please people to draw them in. He's just saying he won't do that at the expense of the true gospel. That his authority is God himself, not man. I want you to hear this. He explicitly says in 2 Corinthians 5.11, Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to what? Persuade men. When's the last time you tried to persuade someone to believe this thing that you profess? Or is it just like, hey, uh, you want to go to coffee? You start talking and you kind of open the door. Oh, yeah, I go to this church and I really love it. And you should check it out. Not my thing. Oh, okay, no worries. Uh, how about hunting next week? That wasn't Paul. He's like, I have this crown jewel, the greatest thing the world has ever heard. I'm going to try to persuade men, persuade women to the truth because it's all we have. Paul stood on truth, yet he still tried to persuade men to the truth. Why? Because he knew the truth. And within the limits of his calling and convictions, he also tried to, as we see this in 1 Corinthians 10, 33, please everyone in every way. That's interesting. We take that in this culture as you're not supposed to please those people. You're supposed to stand on truth. We can stand on truth and still try to please people and usher them into the goodness of a great God. To persuade them to have what we have. Everything. The freeness that we would live an unshackled life, that we would not be bound by these chains by trying to do these things for God. That we would live on shackle and persuade them to it. Side note, if you're living shackled, no one wants to live the life you live. Just saying, when's the last time you looked at a prison? You're like, man, I wish I lived that life. Nah, that's all right. I'll keep living my life. If that's what it is, I want nothing to do with that. That jail cell looks cold and brutal. And sometimes I think the world looks on at us the exact same way as Christians. And they profess this king. They don't have any love. They profess this good God. They don't have any grace for me. They just look at my life and they say, how dare you mess up like that? Come to church with me. Enough fiction. <laughs> no. If we could get it, if we could live an unshackled life, we would be so attractive to a dark world. 
To become unshackled, we have to live in the free gift of salvation, no other gospel. That's what Paul was preaching. He also, one more before we wrap this thing up, he became who he needed to be to reach them. Hear this, not my words, but his, 1 Corinthians 9, 20 through 22. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside of the law, but God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak to, the, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. What that does not say is, I became my drinking buddy with my drinking buddy on Friday night to save him. I became my gossip friend to my gossip friend on Thursday because trying to save them. I became a dishonest business person to this client because I wanted their business, and maybe if I relate with them a little more, then I can bring them into this thing that I have, this unshackled life. That's not what Paul was saying. That doesn't mean you morph into these people that we're not supposed to be. Paul said, they knew who I was. I stood on truth, but I went into where they were to reach them. I related with them as a Jew to reach them as a Jew. I became weak to those who are weak, to come alongside them and say, I'm right there with you, man. I've got you. I've got your hand. Let's walk through this together. I'm persuading you to the truth. It's a whole lot different than becoming Jack and Jackal and Hyde on both ends and trying to then win the world. It doesn't work. And you won't persuade anyone to that because all it is is this jacked up view of God to those who are watching. Paul was seasoned with grace. And for what? All for an audience. One. There was an accomplished young pianist, and he made his debut in Carnegie Hall. He went out and tickled the keys better than I can with my Home on the Range rendition from fifth grade or whenever. But he stunned the audience. It was amazing. They stood in awe. And as he came backstage, the stage manager said, you need to go out for an encore. Can't you see? Look through the curtain. And everyone stood to their feet. And they're just applauding him and praising him. And, oh, we want more encore, encore. We love you, blah, blah, blah. And he looks through the curtain. And he looks up in the top balcony. And there's one guy who's not, sitting, or not standing. And he says, I will not go out for an encore. And the stage manager says, Why? He said, look at these people. You're like their hero. And he said, I will not go for an encore until they, that man, is standing. And the stage manager is like, you are whacked out, man. You're literally not going out because there's one person in this, the whole auditorium that is not standing. He said, why would you do that? And he said, because that man up there is my piano instructor. And unless he stands, I will not go back. <laughs> And we laugh, but it's the same exact thing. <laughs> Sometimes we live our lives for the, audit, the, the applause of all those around us in our business, in our families, in our marriages, in our hobbies, and in everything. And everyone else is applauding and applauding and praising you and saying, oh, how awesome you are. Yet God is sitting there and saying, what are you doing, Luke? You did all of this for their applause and none of it for me. 
But on the same side, we don't serve this God who is just so hard to please, like the piano instructor who's just sitting there like, oh yeah, good job, try next time, Luke, maybe you'll get a little applause from me. It's not God. You know what he said, the young pianist? He would have gone out if everyone else was sitting and his instructor was standing. Is that your view of your calling in your life with God? That was Paul's. He wasn't out to please man. He was out to please God. I have to check myself on it all the time. All the time. Hey Luke, are you preaching for the applause of man? Hey Luke, are you going to soften the message of the gospel so that more people will come in the door faster? Hey Luke, are you going to do these things? Are you going to preach for the applause of me, the applause of one, the audience of one, because he is the one I'm accountable to, not you all. And I'm telling you, it's hard. There's been some things the last couple weeks of people leaving the church for things that I'm like, what? Would you just come talk to me so we could maybe resolve this? No, we're just done. And I'm just being honest with you. It's hard when that happens because I take it personally. And I'm like, is there something that I've done? Is there, but I don't know because you won't talk to me and you just leave and you just destroy and you leave this wake and I don't even know what to do. And God had to remind me this week, hey, Luke, for an audience of one. Hey, Luke, whatever happens out here, you remain faithful, Luke. There is no other gospel. Don't soften it. Don't weaken it. Love people well. But you can't change a lot of that outcome for an audience of one. To which I ask you in your business, is it for an audience of one or is it for the next dollar? In your family, is it for an audience of one or is it for everyone else that's looking on outside of your marriage and saying, well done. Man, your family's all put together and it's in shambles, but no one else knows. Whatever it may be, we all have these spheres of influence, and I want to encourage you in this, that God is not looking for the applause of the auditorium. He's looking for faithfulness. Why do you think we are driving what's your next faithful step? It's for an audience of one. Nothing else matters. If you're faithful to him, God takes care of the rest, and that's what Paul was saying. See, Paul knew that he was not to live for the praise of this world but for an audience of the king of glory. See, if the world is cheering and showering us with rewards, yet God is displeased, then really what have we gained? We may need to reconsider our choices. But by contrast, if God is pleased with our work, though the whole world may oppress and oppose us, we can be satisfied for an audience of one. It's all we have. When you meet God one day, He's not going to say, oh, well done, you grew this amazing business and you reached all these people and you shot all these animals and you did all these things and you poured yourselves and you bought this amazing boat and your summers were pretty awesome and all. Like, no, he's, gonna, it's, he's either going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant, or he's not. It's one or the other. It's not both. Well, he's given us those things to enjoy, we are not to serve them. We are not to serve for the applause of man. Because one day those things are all crumbling and they're all gone. 
So the question is, whatever you are doing, whatever your sphere of influence, is it for the applause of man or is it for the applause of God? Because that's all that lasts in the end. See, the young pianist was not playing merely for his teacher. He offered his labor for the blessing of others around, which was true. But he understood that the true praise and reward he ought to desire most was from his master, not the applause of man. And so it is for us. Stay faithful. Even if no one else knows your name and no one else sees you and no one else understands you, stay faithful. You may live this whole life and never have a talent or a gift revealed that you think should be revealed that God has given you. Stay faithful. And even if it doesn't get revealed, if you're faithful, you have won. I could stand up here and preach so I'm blue in the face, and if I do it for you guys, and not that it's not for you, I mean, that's obviously a lot of it. Just like the penis is for others, but that's not the sole purpose. The sole purpose is because God has called me to this, and I am called to be faithful for an audience of one. There was a man, as we wrap up, his name was Lawrence Dow. He was a deacon at the 10th Street Presbyterian Church. He was a greeter, which, by the way, I want to say this. <laughs> the greeter ministry is probably one of the most important ministries in this church. I'll say that about them all, but the greeter one is one. Because you're the first face that anyone sees when they walk in this door. You're the first face when someone comes in and they're just on their lowest of lows that you can say hi and love them and welcome them and get to know them. God can do amazing things through faithful steps of people who will be obedient to do things for an audience of one. That was Lawrence. But he was also a doorman in a hotel. That was his career. He battled cancer for many years. Finally, God took him home, and at his funeral, they were blown away because the parking lots were packed. There were cars lined up all the way down the streets, all the way down the aisles. There was no room to sit. It was this, just this old... African-American man who was faithful to his very end. He was a doorman at a hotel. No one even really knew his name other than he went to work faithfully. He did the things that he was supposed to do, the things God called him to do. He greeted people at the door, and all of a sudden, his funeral is here, and it's jam-packed. And there were many people that shared their testimony of how Lawrence had met them. Maybe they walked in the hotel. They're like, I don't even know. This guy was just so full of life that I was just drawn to him. Three pastors actually said Lawrence had led them to Christ and encouraged them in their ministry journey. His family spoke of the legacy and faith and the love that they had for him. And just the whole service was overwhelming at this funeral. And after the funeral was done, there were a bunch of people sitting around, and there was a few minutes of silence of people just taking in what had just occurred, and then one of them said this. It just goes to show what God can do with a life of anyone who yields himself unreservedly to Jesus. He was a doorman at a hotel, and his impact was far greater than many people in the public eye. Because he was faithful. Because he knew his calling was not for the applause of man. It was for an audience of one. And that is what Paul is saying. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. We either please man or Christ. 
Now, Paul pleads both, obviously. God used him, but that was not his sole mission, was to gain the attention of man. See, if the band wants to come up, once we taste and see the goodness of God, we too would be astonished by someone trying to desert the gospel. We can't help but see the gospel for what it truly is and then wander away. It's crazy. People that wander away from the gospel, it's not. Sometimes, it's, sometimes people ask me, hey, Luke, can you lose your salvation? No. You cannot. It's impossible. Scripture, I mean, it's impossible to lose your salvation. Well, then, why are they wandering away? Well, I don't know. There's seasons where it's hard. I get it. And people wander and maybe they desert God for some time that they come back. Because if you're saved, you will always come back. Well, what about the one that just never came back? Probably were never saved to begin with. See, we can have seasons as Christians where we kind of are deserting the God and the goodness of the gospel because we lose sight of it. But if you're saved, you'll always come back. There's a period of wandering and confusion and I just feel deserted by God and I begin to wander, but then I come back. But maybe you're in this place and you have just deserted God altogether. Maybe you've been running from him your entire life and you have never even come to him. Or maybe you got thought you got saved when you were in high school and there was this moment that you're like, oh, that was cool for a week at this youth camp, but that really hasn't been real ever since, and I'm just living my life, and you've just you've deserted God. There's a difference in deserting and deserted. If that's you, you can come to him this morning and just say, God, I'm just messed up. God, I realize that there's nothing I can do to earn the love and the favor of you. God, I realize that my sin is what separated me from you, and I just need you. I want to live this unshackled life. I want to be unbound so that I can live in the fullness of who you created me to be, not for the applause of men, but for the applause of the audience of one. The amazing thing about the gospel is this morning, there is no other religion on earth that can offer this. You can't measure up. You can't fix your life before you come to Jesus. Jesus fixes your life. You can't do these things to earn the love and the favor of God. You can't keep pushing and pushing and pushing and think, God, well, if I come to church enough and if I go to youth group and if I treat people well and if I'm a good boss and if I'm a good co-worker and if I do all these things, then I'll earn finally the right to stand righteously before a holy God. You cannot, you will not, it's impossible. Jesus says, come to me just as you are, and I will make you whole, and I will make you pure, and I will make you, declare you righteous before the God of heaven. It can happen in a moment. Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know where my old life was. I know what I've done. But praise God that you don't hold that against me. I'm coming to you now, and I'm giving my life, and I'm surrendering it to you. Because it's for you and you alone that I live. Not just as Savior, but as Lord. And in a moment, he'll set you free. That's what sets the gospel apart from any other religion on earth. Is you can't earn it. You didn't deserve it. And you can't gain it on your own merit. Come to him. There's nothing greater. There's absolutely nothing greater than that. Why? Because there is no other 
gospel. And once we truly experience this, it becomes very, very difficult not to live for an audience of one. Our last value is this. We are one. We stand united under the banner of Jesus. It's very intentional. Very, very intentional because there is no other gospel. And not are we just one standing under the banner of Jesus, but we live our lives for the audience of one because there is no other. That's why I can't understand when we sing all hail King Jesus. It's like, oh, Like how? I'm not telling you how to worship. Promise me. I promise you I'm not telling you. I don't want you to manufacture how you worship. I'm not trying to create some machine. But for me, I can't help it. I can't just stand here and look at the screen and just, like, let my mind wander. I can't. I don't get it. I can't grasp it. Because I know what Jesus has done for me. I didn't deserve it. If you guys knew my life, you'd be like, if God can save him, he can save all of you. I just can't get over it. It never loses its luster. It never loses its beauty. It never loses the pure power of the gospel to save. To which I say, all hail King Jesus. All hail the King of all the earth. Because you are worthy, God. You are worthy of it all. And I don't deserve any of it. For me, God, I will live my life for an audience of one. Because you are all that matters. I'm not telling you how to worship. I'm just saying I pray you feel free to worship in this place. However God calls you to worship. If you want to lift your hands, lift your hand. If you want to sit in your chair, sit in your chair. If your heart, if you worship like this and your heart is totally engaged, that's amazing. I'm just saying this. Make sure your heart's engaged. Because we're not just doing this to play a game. We're doing this because we live for an audience of one, for the applause of one, and that's attractive to a hurting world, a place that has life. There's enough death in this world. The church is to be a place of life, living as one under the banner of Jesus, not for the applause of man, but for the applause of God. And if we do that, we've won. God, I thank you. God, I just pray in this room that you would tenderly come alongside each person in this place and meet them in a real way. God, if there's things in their life that they've made mistakes in coming into this room, God, would you just remind them of your faithfulness? Your word says, even when we're faithless, you remain faithful, for you cannot deny yourself. Open our eyes, O oh God, to see your faithfulness, not to pray for your faithfulness, for you are faithful. Open our eyes to see that you are faithful, to see that you are good, to see that you are loving, to see that you pursue us, God. And if we will just turn from our old way and turn to you, you will set us free and we can live an unshackled life. For that is what draws prisoners in, not being chained to a wall, but being set free. That's the message of the gospel. God, make us that kind of people. Make us a people that love you, that pursue you, and that need you, God. Would our hearts be open to you this morning? We pray in Jesus' name.